the theme of our retreat has been courage, courage on the journey. It's actually what brought you here. It's what has kept you here. None of you have run away. And it's what will sustain us when we leave. Because just to call it up, just to have a, a, a pure desire to know it, to know what it feels like, uh, nurtures it and fires it up. It's a, it's a catalyst just to be mindful and to know courage. And as we see, it comes as a fabric. You know, its predecessor is, is confidence, this uh, growing trust in the process, this bold and daring energy to, uh, to venture into what we don't know. And the tranquility whereby we begin to see clearly what's true. The as-it-is nature of life, free of our conditioning, our fabrications of mind. And then the, that unfolding courageous energy that is the sustaining force of mindfulness and that is able to recognize, discern along with intuitive wisdom the skillful from the unskillful. So it's the courageous energy that keeps lifting up the skillful and sustaining it, um, letting go unskillful patterns, thoughts, um, habits, and preventing those from arising again. Uh, And the fabric includes this uh, quality of patience or acceptance and rebellious simplicity. So I'm going to focus on those, those two tonight. Patience, the Buddha said many times, is the path to Nibbana, or Nirvana. It's a power. It's a, it's a power of presence. It's the opposite of um, resisting experience. Patience is, is, our, is our capacity uh, first to know our limits and capabilities and, and either explore or rest, you know, modulate our energy, so we're willing to go into what might be dark and difficult, or resource, learn how to draw from that deep place of rest and relaxation. Um, an old friend of mine uh, that I met when I used to do men's retreats was Robert Bly and company. His name is Maladoma Somate, and he came he comes from West Africa. And as a young child of three, he was, he was stolen by um, Western people and raised in a Catholic institution. Uh, and at 18, that westernized, bright mind, he had become very accomplished at. Uh, and he, he, um, you know, he, he entered universities like the Sorbonne in Paris and Cambridge and in London, in colleges on the East Coast of America. But he also had a kind of awakening where he, he wanted or even needed to find his roots, you know, where he came from. So he went back to his, his village uh, the, of the 
Dakara people in West Africa, Dagara people. And the elders, you know, accepted him for a period of time and as many times as he wanted to come back, which he did quite often. You know, and in little stages, they they taught him his the ancestral ways, the Dagra way of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing. And at one time, he was telling me he he um, he had been back for a period of time, and his habit, as with many of us, as as dusk grows, you know, we turn the lights up. They lived in a village that. You know, had no lights. In fact, Baisitos used to be all lanterns. So he went to reach and turn the lanterns on, you know, as was his habit. And one of the elders said, Maladoma, you know, why are you turning up the lights? And Maladoma said, so, so we can see more clearly. You know, and then the, it was just that right moment where these uh, elders held him in affection and trust so he wouldn't feel criticized or shamed. And they said, you know, Maladoma, you can't see more clearly with a light turned on. It's like trying to see things clearly in, in the daylight. You only see what you want to see. You don't see what's real. You need to turn the lights down. You need to dim the lights and descend into the dark areas of the body and mind to see clearly. And of course they met the conceptual lights and he had been so well trained and cultured in, with that bright western conceptual way of analyzing and discursing and, and seeing things. And the elders had, had sensed that and they made him first feel accepted and welcomed back you know, into his ancestral home, into the fold. But then they began to say, you know, you're not going to see that way. You need to grow accustomed to the dim light and descend with this more primal and feeling awareness into the mind, into the body, and know it directly, you know, not from your other learning. So by the time I met him, you know, he had both minds, which was really interesting. He had both minds fully developed and knew the difference. His indigenous way of knowing was, again, strong and forward, and then he could he could assess where and when and how uh, uh, to use more skillfully the the discursive mind, the thinking mind, analytical mind. This is his his presence and his teaching is <coughs> applicable to all of us. So it's this quality of you know non opposition to experience and this capacity to genuinely connect or tuned to things that describes patience in the in the Buddhist vocabulary or psychology. It's an authenticity of being. You know, we touch what's real, whether we like it or not, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Just this capacity to to feel what's true. And therefore it's it's this you know authenticity of being. And the, and the and the sense, the gift of it is um, is um, this profound presence. You know, it's it's a visceral sense. People feel it when you're there and you're accepting. Uh, they feel seen. They feel unafraid. It's like how you're held by 
that kind of teacher, like where Maladoma went back, or I felt held by my teachers in Burma. Um, and likewise, if we turn that on ourselves and start sensing and feeling parts of ourselves that previously we don't accept, we've forgotten about or repressed, or, you know, they've enfolded into one of those karmic knots, one of those dhamma pains. Gradually, this, this power of presence, this patience, this acceptance, and this desire to see and feel and be with what's true, what's real, we enter into our own, you know, d- uh, dark areas. And with the dimmer lights, rather than the bright analytical ones, we begin to connect, begin to feel what's real. The Buddha also said that patience is the same as, as metta, unconditional love. He said they're the same practice. They have the same nature. When we experience this unconditional love, and from time immemorial, we all long to love and be loved unconditionally. That, that means just as we are, with all our flaws and, and uh, faults and mistakes, to, to give and receive that quality of acceptance is pure, is pure kindness, pure love. And it accompanies us, you know, it's inherent in every moment of mindful, mindfulness. And it's part of our courage. It's part of our confidence. Uh, and it's clearly a definition of patience in, in the Buddhist psychology. In the early years uh, that I was in Burma and practicing as a monk, there was a period of time where... Uh, I was the only Westerner there because every so often the, the dictator was paranoid and he kicked everyone out. He thought they were connected with the CIA or KGB, some paranoia like that. So it just so happened I was coming back in by fortune with a visa when all the Westerners were leaving. In one sense, it was kind of nice, you know, to have the whole foreign quarters to myself, and um, he was quieter, and I could, I, could, I could connect more with being there and learn the ways, the monastic ways of life. At the same time, it was really intimidating, because every day, you know, our main meal is at 10.30 in the morning, and uh, uh, about 11 or 11.15, when we finished, I'd be invited to my teacher's cottage, where the community uh, who supply all the foods for the monastery. There's this lovely interdependence between lay community and the monastic uh, sangha of monks and nuns. So I, I go for desserts. It was a special kind of thing. We sat on the floor around a round table, four or five monks, including myself, and then there'd be all these delights, those sweets or special fruits from Upper Burma, Mangoes and papayas, and, uh, and and there's a name for it in the Buddhist Pali language, and it means delightful gathering, kind of like a a Japanese tea ceremony, but with less ritual. But it's the same sense of of awareness, presence, silence, care, attentiveness. But for me, it was anything but delightful. 
it was terrifying because I, w- I was the youngest person there, uh, 29 or 30. My teacher was double my age. And then everyone else was um, 90 or 100. You know, I felt like I was sitting around all these ponderosa pines and ancient oak trees. I'd look under the table at their feet and their hands and knuckles, and, you know, they felt so rooted to the earth, just looking at the, the form and shape of the 100-year-old hand, you know, that's still so, has still so alive, and they're still so, they're so present. And the whole sort of energy field of these delightful gatherings was pretty non-conversational. It wasn't that you weren't supposed to speak, and once in a while they did speak, and at that time I knew very little Burmese. And I just hear someone say something, and sometimes another monk would respond, sometimes not. And there weren't all the usual social niceties, you know? Like, I noticed if my teacup got low, a monk would offer tea. You know, and I learned that if, if I wanted to, if I wanted it, I just let him pour it. If I didn't, I just hold my hand up. You know, like it's enough. There was no yes, please, thank you, or no, thank you, nothing like that. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. You know, I, I didn't know how to be there in this sort of non-doing, um, you know, meta field of care and presence and compassion. That they just were doing effortlessly. They just sat around like these, you know, the ancient elders that they were, um, passing the fruits and making sure everyone had what they wanted. And if they didn't, they'd just hold their hand up. It was a terrifying 30 minutes. I couldn't wait to get out. And by the time I was finished, my robes were soaking wet with sweat. And my mind was even sweatier. You know, I was just scared. I couldn't wait to get back and drench myself in water. And then start to, uh, uh, you know, be afraid of the next day, <laughs> knowing I'd received that same invitation. And every day it was it was an invitation. Someone would come to where I was eating in the dining hall and say, "Please come to an Upandita's cottage." Uh, and so I, f- I just felt like such a failure to begin with. Uh, first of all, when I would bow, half my robes would fall off because I didn't know how to wear them properly. I'm just a fumbling idiot. If I was pouring someone's tea, I'd spill it because I was so nervous. If, it was, if I was using my hors d'oeuvre fork, you know, to plunge into a piece of papaya or mango, you know how soft they are. And if you're just a little bit nervous, you know, it, they drop most of the time. Sometimes it plopped right into my tea. And I just felt like an idiot. Again, I couldn't wait to get out. It was not a delightful gathering. It was a terrifying gathering. Three or four days of this go by, and I noticed something. I noticed that they don't, they didn't really mind my sloppy and bumbling behavior, you know, and my sweaty body and mind and fear, and they could see where I was at. But I just started to feel held in this unconditional acceptance, this metta feel, this patience. Like they really didn't mind what was happening. It was just this bumbling new 
kid on the Buddhist block, you know, from Hawaii. He didn't know what he was doing, but I didn't felt any blame. And I was my I was the only enemy to myself there. <laughs> and then I'd start to relax a little bit. And I noticed two things. I noticed two qualities. One was this this profound patience and care, you know, this profound presence, metta-like presence. And the other was non-attachment. Like, they didn't need to, um, they didn't need me to be any different. And so, therefore, I started to relax, you know. And even though I was still pretty much a bumbling idiot, I actually started to enjoy the delightful gathering. It became a metaphor for my practice and my life. This combination of care, compassion, patience, and and non-attachment, equanimity, you know, non-reactivity, just accepting myself as I was. That was pretty cool. There's a poem by. Um, Billy Collins, who at one time was our country's um, poet laureate, that describes to me this quality of patience, acceptance, and loving kindness. It's called Aimless Love. This morning, as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at her machine in the tailor's window, and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone. The love of the chestnut, the jazz cap, and one hand on the wheel. No lust, no slam of the door, the love of the miniature orange tree, the clean white shirt, the hot evening shower, the highway that cuts across Florida. No waiting, no huffiness or rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water, and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod, ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. (laughs) Metta, like patience, can be for anything and all things. Conditions, weather, our own emotions, other people, what we like and dislike, as a as a practice tool, it's what helps us helps determine when we can go in and explore, you know, those di- difficult and dark places, and when we need to 
resource, rest. You know, find that place that we're learning here, how to um, draw from our wellspring of profound rest and relaxation. It's still awake. And it still has this electric charge and present presence, but it's not. Um, uh, it's a constant um, source of energy and inspiration, and we can just rest. You know, we can just be. We don't have to always be exploring whatever's happening. We can just let it come and go. Where I I teach several times a year in um, the jungle and and on a lake in southern Thailand. It's a remnant, um, 160-million-year-old tropical rainforest. And it's um, amongst these these 3,000-foot-high limestone you know, cliffs. It looks like it's cut out of a Chinese landscape painting. In fact, it's the same series or family of mountains that start in Guilin, China, and win their way down through Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, all the way to Borneo. And so here on this lake, um, we've been having for the past six and a half years retreats. We used to have them on an island, um, Golden Buddha Island, where I often go and stay. But um, after the tsunami, we started going to the, the these floating bamboo bungalows and a floating meditation sala in the jungle. And sometimes, you know, and I thought of this today because some of you spoke of the rain and the sound of the rain, sometimes there's, there's nothing to do but completely immerse yourself in the experience of this pounding monsoon rain, you know, on the tin roof or on the water that's all around. We're, we're anchored you know, just along the shoreline of the jungle, but we're definitely floating. So the water just poor. Sometimes it's sideways, and uh, it's not about you know making sound an anchor. It's like <laughs> there's no choice. The whole experience is 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 hearing and feeling because the sound, as you sometimes notice, isn't just sound vibrations at the ear door. It's a, it's a very physical experience, particularly when you're feeling a pounding rain. You, you feel it like sensations in the body. And, and you just have to open to it, like other sounds of the jungle. You know, the second night of um, a retreat earlier this year, there was this intense, loud jungle sound. And I went, I went to one of the the Thai manager says, what, you know, what's all that about? And they said, well, it was a battle between a wild boar and an elephant. A, bur- a very brief battle, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, this roaring, trumpeting sound of the elephant. And they probably just had a jungle collision. Who knows? But it was, that's what it was. And that's what you live with. Uh, very, like here, very, very close to nature body and the senses, you can't help but open to it, but accept what's there. Uh, and, and therefore, the, the value you know, of practicing in places like this is so great, because it's so immediately uh, grounding and embodying and cleansing of the senses. 
when we really pay attention, for example, in the moment of hearing a sound, in the moment of the in in the single moment of awareness of hearing, three things come together: the sound vibration and the inner sensitivity of the ear. Those little filaments that vibrate from the physical sound wave or vibration and immediately hearing awareness or hearing consciousness. Upandita, my teacher, would describe it as like having a matchbox and a match and striking the match. So the the side of the matchbox is like our, our sense receptors, the sensitivity of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and and the mind. And the matchstick is like the sense imprint, the the striker, sight, sound, scent, flavor, body sensation, mental thought or memory. And in the moment of striking the match in the matchbox, the ignition is called ignition. The flame is like the ignition of consciousness, that particular sense consciousness. And when we're in the wild like this, that's going on moment to moment. So patience just helps us with this, you know, with our capacity, how close we can get, you know, to any kind of experience. Uh, just pure sense imprint from any of the sense fields. And the more difficult stuff. You know, as we start being present and start feeling a, a kind of field of safety and protection, like many of you mentioned here, you know, not used to going out for walks, uh, but some profound shift happened for you, you know, and you went out alone in nature, uh, and it was a transformative experience, because something inside of you felt willing to do that, some combination or all of that, of the confidence and courage, uh, and the non-opposition, the acceptance, the willingness to go into whatever it is. It's the same when we turn our awareness you know, into the interior and come up against some of the more difficult experiences that we can have. When my mom was aging, I had her living in my house in a, in a special room and, you know, that would care for her. She lived till 97. And the last couple of years you know, of her life, she'd start having these episodes of delusion and um, um, confusion, dementia, periods and then periods of clarity. And one, one night, you know, I heard her down the hall. And my daughter uh, was there as her primary caretaker. She took a semester off in her grad school to be home with her grandma. And so she was in the, the studio with one of those baby receptor things where you hear sounds. Uh, but actually, I, was, I heard it first. I heard my mom getting up and moving around her room. So I went, I went in her room, and she had walked across from her bed. And she was looking in the mirror. And she was, and I said, Mom, what are you doing? And by then, Chandra, my daughter, came in, and she said, Tutu, it's a Hawaiian word for grandparent. Tutu, what are you doing? 
and and my mom said, "Well, I'm trying to get to that little girl in the window. You know, I I want I want to get her. I need to talk to her. I need to see her. You know, how do I get through here?" She was tapping on the on the mirror, and so you know, first we just affirmed her experience, like, "Oh, really?" It's, the, that little girl in there, and Chandra said, "Is that a little girl, Tutu, or is that you?" She says, "No, that's a little, that's a little girl, you know." And I need to talk to her. I need to see her. So just affirming where she was at in her world, whatever she was constructing, just gently guided her back to the bed. And Chandra did like kind of a check-in. She went and got a hand mirror first. She said, uh, Tutu, now you know this is your son, Stephen, and I'm your granddaughter, you know, your son's daughter, I'm Chandra, and this is you. And she held up the mirror in front of my mom. And then my mom was clear. She said, that's me? That can't be me, that's an old lady. <laughs> and just so, you know, with all the kindness and presence in our heart, we just affirmed that. Yeah, that that is you, Mama, you know, or Tutu. And she said, that's not the little girl there anymore, is it? And we said, no. you know. And she said, does this happen to everyone? And yes, we said, yeah, it will happen to, to your son, Stephen, will happen to, you know, your granddaughter, Chandra. All of us will get that way. You know, that's old age. And she just said, oh, okay. You know, and she let go and went back to bed. So patience is also being able to hold the all the opposite. Confidence and doubt, courage and fear. You know, patience and the opposite is resistance, opposition to experience. And... Um, renunciation and reactivity. So this last <coughs> quality, this sustaining factor of our practice, uh, courage, mindfulness, the word nekama, usually translated as, as renunciation, and I call rebellious simplicity, it literally means the pleasure of release, and what's released is are all our in, entangled hab- habitual patterns, uh, obsessions. You know, the, the story we make up about ourselves and life. And, and it keeps rolling, you know, we just keep reinventing it, adding to it. We may change it a bit. But it's just fabrication. It's pure mental proliferation. And, and that's what we rebel against. We rebel against that because why? Because it it prevents us from feeling things as they really are. Prevents us from that authenticity of being, from direct contact. It ultimately prevents us, you know, from opening, you know, dimming the lights and going into those areas of shadowy darkness, and opening to those karmic knots. Not that we need to figure them out, but we do need to touch them. We do need to feel them. Feeling is healing. Mindful, compassionate feeling is healing. It happens on a pre-verbal level. 
So as I've, as we've been saying before, these karmic knots, some of them will be with us forever. You know, as long as we may be in this lifetime, may be passed down generationally, ancestrally, maybe just, you know, karma from a past life, if we, if we hold that view. It doesn't really matter. But all these little folds and creases and contractions are hiding our places of joy and places of pain and places of uh, brilliance, luminosity, goodness. And so, and so we have to at least acknowledge what's there so that we begin to you know, polish the tarnish off. In my group today, we were talking about how the natural state of our heart-mind is, is just is luminosity. And the, the work we do, the, the mindfulness and the supporting forces like confidence and courage and patience and uh, this uh, rebellious um, attitude against all the, all the ways we get caught up, our, our cravings and obsessions, are like polishing that tarnished bronze bowl. And we see all the tarnish coming off, you know? Sometimes it's not so pleasant. But slowly, with each rub of the awareness, each rub of the mindful, caring, metta, compassion, uh, patience, and so forth, what comes out? the innate nature of that bronze bowl, which is luminous, shining, um, brilliant. So that's what the nekama is, and, and the uh, release of, of, of op- re- re- the rebellion against these opposing conditions and the release of these, the burden of carrying all that around. It's so tiring to repeat our story you know, over and over again to explain ourselves to ourselves, or that running commentary. It's ultimately, you know, what might bring us to a retreat. Because we're just so tired of it. The same stuff over over and over again. I love this poem by um, Jane Hirschfield. Because it's about, you know, honoring the work that we do and coming up against our wounds and our karmic knots called For What Binds Us. There are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around you, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup. Nails rusting into places they join. Joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly whenever they've been set down. And gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised, proud flesh, as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, See how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. Really speaks directly to, you know, how how opening to 
our, our woundedness, our vulnerability uh, indeed makes us stronger. And we can have a healthy, healthy pride around that. We can feel more connected with ourselves and all that we love, other people, uh, the environment around us. Because after all, it's all those things that, you know, are the conditions whereby we're wounded in the first place. So ultimately, they bind us together in this incredible interconnected way. As we, you know, shine away or polish away at the tarnish, some pure magic begins to happen. You know, this is sort of spontaneous openings. And you never know where we're going to get some unusual skill. Uh, I heard once when I came back from Burma in the 90s of a concert in New York um, where the, the solo violinist was this man, Isaac Perlman. And it was a very unusual story. He was... Um, he had polio from childhood. And so to watch him come on stage for people who know him is this both painful and majestic, you know, march across, slow march across the stage. And then he sits down and lays down his hand braces and arranges his legs with the braces, one forward, one behind, picks up his violin, begins to play, and the signals to the conductor. So all, you know, the Lincoln Hall in New York was filled and people were just, you know, ready for his magical performances. He was so, so masterful, uh, so skilled at, at his music. And it was just two or three notes into it and a loud shot rang out, you know. It sounded like a gunshot, but everyone in the audience knew <coughs> what happened, you know, that a string had broke. And also everyone knew that either he had to get up put his braces and his crutches back together and walk out, restring, you know, or, or get an alternate violin. It was a timeless moment, but it was only a couple of seconds. And he again signaled to the conductor. And he started again. And what he managed to do was make the sound that four strings of a violin make with only three. You know, that, that's just where he got that energy. You know, that's the result of courage and confidence and patience and setting aside any, any fear, any reactivity that might come up with this rebellious simplicity. You know, this refusal to buy in to our you know, old habit patterns. So he, he just invented and fretted with his fingers and, and created all the right sounds with three strings that you usually need four strings for. It was a, supposedly the best concert some people had ever heard, you know, old fans of his. And at the end of it, it was a moment of silence. You could hear a pin drop and then a standing ovation that just wouldn't stop until he held his violin bow up and he wiped his brow. And he said, I think sometimes... It's the, it's the artist's task to give everything they have and then sometimes to give everything they have left. 
It's a one spontaneous, you know, elastic, timeless moment. All his life went into his, his uh, incredible, masterful skill at, the, at, the, at playing the violin and music. And then <laughs> the string broke. And what do you do? Well, somewhere, somehow, he resourced all that confidence and courage and all that acceptance of what was happening and all that ability to you know, renounce anything interfering with that powerful moment and make magic. It was, it was an awesome experience. The Buddha was said to be very skilled in knowing when someone was ready to open, to awaken. And there's one story of him walking by a circus after the morning alms round. And in the circus field were all the acrobats and performers getting ready for an afternoon showing. You know, so there weren't people, there weren't so many people around, just, just the acrobats and performers in training. And he saw this one acrobat, his name was Ugasena. And his skill was to climb up a very tall bamboo pole it may be as high as in the, it's the ceiling here. He'd, he'd balance it on the ground and climb up it, and then he'd balance on top of the bamboo pole, and then he'd arch his body, you know, so that his feet were pointing toward the heavens. And he'd balance first on two hands and then on one hand, and then on two fingers, and finally one finger. And it was that point when he was balancing it on one finger and you know, that perfect pitch of body, mind, attunement and awareness that the Buddha walks up. And he says, very simple, three things, four things. Ugasena, first, he says the name. And, you know, he doesn't move a muscle, doesn't flick an eye, stays right, perfectly balanced. Ugasena, let go any thoughts of the past. Let go any thoughts of the future. Don't hold on to anything at all in this very moment. That was his teaching. Let go all thoughts of the past, all thoughts of the future, and hold on to nothing at all in this very moment. And he got the teaching, and he got fully enlightened. He didn't even fall off his bamboo pole. These qualities of confidence and courage, acceptance, rebelling against habit, they're what keep the renewal process. You know, they are what keep us inspired, they keep us flexible. They draw out all these really good qualities. And we learn not to identify, not to take anything personally. The difficult states, you know, neither the fear or the courage. They're both just moments of mental nature, mental elements, just like sound. It's a moment, elemental moment of sound vibration. And the body is this moment-to-moment physical sensation. Everything is just as it is. To self-reference it is tiresome. 
You know, it just it's, it makes this sense of a heavy self that we carry around, a burden. Uh, and the practice teaches us to equally regard, you know, courage and fear. Gradually, as, I've, as, we've, been, as we've been saying, it's the awareness itself that's transformative, that's purifying, the affectionate awareness. It keeps drawing up all these other positive, powerful, skillful states, like these four virtues here. And finally, it's like we lead a life that these positive forces are are our guides. They help us pay more attention. So when we come up against the opposition and the fear and the um, doubts, we know how to work. We know how to work with them. We know how to make space in the moment. Because just by not identifying, we make tremendous space. Because as soon as we identify, that mental proliferation proliferation begins. The story begins. We believe in the story. We add to the story. It just keeps getting more dense and more stacked. You know, and here, like you've been seeing, it starts to recede. The proliferating, fabricating process begins to grow more in the background, and and life comes forward. Sounds, scent, sensations from the ground. You know, the the living nature of this Vallecitos Valley comes forward, and we learn to make new trysts with life. I'm going to end with a, a quotation from a book um, that finally let me know that my mom understood what we were about, you know, doing these retreats. You know, I've been going off and living in India in the 70s, then going into Burma and Thailand, and doing all these, what she called, you know, that sounds very Spartan, you know, to not eat after 12. And she had no idea what what I was doing when I ordained as a monk, and I was really very far away. Unknown to me, uh, this reporter came from Bangkok to interview all the Westerners, you know, why they were coming to Burma to, to practice meditation. Well, it was that time I told you, well, I, was, I was the only Westerner there, so I was all of the Westerners he came to interview. And he, so I... You know, I said why I was there, what motivated me to be there, and what the practice was like, and he wanted to take a few snapshots. And he warned me that he wasn't a great photographer. So I was, you know, I was in this open, accepting place. The guy had a job to do, it's okay, you know. So I was doing walking meditation, and he took a a photograph. It, It was six months later, you know, when I had to leave Burma to get renew my visa, that I learned that that article went out internationally. The International Herald Tribune and you know many of the newspapers across Europe and America, including the Honolulu Advertiser. <laughs> and there was you know one of Hawaii's sons. It looked like a cone head. <laughs> the angle of the picture, because I'm bald, right, and wearing these robes, and I'm kind of looking down. So it, it lo- I look like this weird alien. <laughs> It terrified, it horrified my mother. You know, luckily, I didn't know. But then one day I came home, 
and there's my stack of mail and articles on my high school friends and whatnot and this and that. And, and then here was this quotation that came from a book by Gail Godwin called The Finishing School. And then I knew she understood why we're here. And the quotation goes, there are two kinds of people. One kind you can just tell by looking at them at what point they congealed into their final selves. It might be a very nice self, but you know you can expect no more surprises from it. Whereas the other kind keep moving, changing. They are fluid. They keep moving forward and making new trysts with life. And the motion of it keeps them young. In my opinion, they are the only people who are still alive. You must be constantly on your guard against congealing. Wherever we are at in our lives, in our practice, in our age, in our experience, it's it's possible con- to congeal at any time, and, and we all know that. You know, we all have that various fixed identities, and now, as new or old yogis, we know what it's like to release them. We know the pleasure of letting go all those identifications what it's like and what it can be like for our, the entire life of our bodies and our spiritual practice. <clears throat> Let's just sit together for a moment. I'd just like you to reflect on this quality of, of deep, profound, comfort, rest, relaxation. The word for it in, in, in the Buddhist Pali is viveka. It's a synonym as well for the ultimate release. It is a, the mind completely liberated without any greed, hatred, or delusion. practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.